0: you can be seated. I'll give it up for my friend Lee. (laughs) You can do better than that, guys. Give it up for Lee. Come on. (laughs) If you knew the amount of work this guy does, that would have been a standing ovation, but that's beside the point. Hey, welcome to Horizon West Church. It is beginning to feel a lot like Florida, but it is Christmas season, so Merry Christmas early Uh, Anybody go to the Winter Garden Parade last night, walk around a little bit, or watch it from home? That was the better idea. It was very hot. Uh, But we're just glad you're here. Wherever you came from, however long you've been uh, with us, thank you for coming today. Um, I want to, before I kind of dive into the context of the message or the content, uh, I want to let you know about an opportunity. If you are not currently subscribed to our daily uh, verse text, I want to give you an opportunity. So 40777, if you'll text that number and text the word daily you're going to get a daily verse from the church. And here's the cool thing. In the Advent season, so as we kind of look toward Christmas, Advent me- means anticipation. As we anticipate celebrating Christmas together, the coming of Jesus, each day for the next days leading up to Christmas, that verse will actually be not only a verse, a passage of scripture, something to pray, something to interact with. So there's a little more meat on the bones. So again, if you're not yet subscribing, daily to 40777 is the way to do that. Show of hands, how many of you will cook or bake a special dish this Christmas season? Okay, that's a lot lower than the first service. So we need to have some cooking lessons. That's not going to be my job, but we need to do that. Um, I am not somebody that's really proficient in the kitchen. Um, I, Thanks to HelloFresh in 2020, I did learn some basics of cooking. So apparently salt and butter go in everything. And if you're in the South, a lot of it goes in everything. Um, but beyond that, I'm not, a, I'm not a real big baker or cook. I almost said cooker. That would not be the right language. And here's what I especially am not into. I, I don't understand people that watch baking and cooking shows. Uh, that, to me, is so unentertaining. I forget where I was recently and somebody had it on, and like five minutes in, I'm like, I'm bored out of my mind. I don't understand why this is entertaining. It's like other things I don't really get. I don't really get people that have a lot of cats. Uh, nothing... Nothing against cats, one or two seems sufficient. Uh, Or or people that watch anime, don't get that, God bless them if they do. Uh, People that cheer for the New York Jets football team, that's just not something that I understand. And I don't understand cooking shows, but I do uh, enjoy cooking somewhat. And one of the big learnings in 2020, when I started to figure out what it takes to make things... One of the big learnings is that no matter what you run out of, you can almost always find a substitute for it. Now, in my family, we have allergies to everything. So I'm going to introduce you to some products. This is called Just Egg. This is, if you have an allergy to eggs, which is in our family, uh, three tablespoons of this is equal to one egg. So this goes in a lot of different things. Uh, This is vegan butter. It says, I can't believe it's not butter. It's really not butter, but it is a substitute for it. Uh, We've got dairy issues, so coconut, uh, organic coconut milk, heavy whipping cream alternative, and we've even got gluten-free flour. If you would like to take a picture of these things, you can pay me a uh, finder's fee. No, I'm just kidding. But that's the nature of making things in the kitchen. Whether it's allergies or whether you simply have run out of something, you can almost always turn and find something that takes its place. And what I'm going to say today and where we're going to build the message around today is when it comes to the Christian life, there is no substitute for love. It's the one thing that that when you run out of love, when you don't find in your heart the ability to love God or people well, there's nothing you can reach for and go, well, I'll just add this in its place. And so in Paul's letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13, what is often called the love chapter, we're going to see four places or four things that Paul says be careful that you don't try and substitute this for love. And so you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, We are going to be in a series throughout this Christmas season called The Greatest of These, which is going to come from this passage. And somebody's going to say, hey, shouldn't we be doing a Christmas series, right? And my response to that would be, we are doing a Christmas series. Because I've been reading through 1 Corinthians 13 every single day. What I'm discovering is that at the center of that passage is love, and at the center of the Christmas season is love on display. There is no, there's no better passage to tell the Christmas story than, than a passage that says the greatest thing in the world, the most essential thing, is love. And so that's where we're going to be for the next several weeks. Now, before we dive into the passage, let me say one more thing, and then we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Love is kind of a hot topic in our our culture, and our society, and that can mean a lot of different things. And I want to tell you what we're talking about when we talk about love. We are talking about Christian love, which is defined by Scripture. Not the other way around. We, We don't go, oh, hey, here's what love is, and then hope the Bible matches the description. We're going to look at love as defined in Scripture and also love that is demonstrated by Jesus. There's no greater person, there's no greater thing to look to, to learn how to love, than by looking at the Gospels and looking at the life of Jesus. So with all of that, let me go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm going to read the whole passage and then we're going to dive into just a few verses together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains... Now we see it in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Before we look at these four insufficient substitutes for love, I, I want to uh, give you some context for what Paul is doing. So in, in Matthew chapter 16, we see Jesus establishing the, the foundation of the church, meaning the general idea of church. That comes in Matthew 16. Jesus says to the disciples, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. A few pages later, we see in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit is poured out on the new followers of Jesus, the, the new Christians at Pentecost. And so what Jesus predicted in Matthew 16 becomes fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. This is the day that the church of Jesus is born. And what happens next is that that church and those early followers of Jesus spread out all over the known world and communities of Jesus followers pop up in all these different places. And what those individuals begin to experience is that the Holy Spirit that was poured out on Pentecost on them has also now brought them gifts of the Spirit to both advance and sustain the church. So gifts like evangelism and uh, apostolic gifts to allow them to go into new places with the gospel. Gifts like mercy and teaching and hospitality to sustain the church and to grow it up. Here's the problem in the city of Corinth. The Corinthian church was so enamored with these spiritual gifts and especially what are called sensational gifts. Gifts like prophecy and, and tongues that they've lost sight of the most essential thing. And I want to tell you that each of these substitutes that we're going to look at in a minute, each of these is still a threat to the church today. And so with that, uh, let me go to insufficient substitute number one. These are all going to come from the first three verses of the passage. Number one is this, dynamic speech. Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, what Paul is doing, he's addressing two different uh, things with one word. He says the word tongues. First, he says tongues of men. I take this to mean Paul is thinking about people that are gifted communicators. They're they're gifted orators. There was a man named Apollos in the early church. He was actually from the city of Corinth. And man, when Apollos spoke, people listened. Crowds of people would gather to hear Apollos speak. He was gifted in dynamic speech tongues of men is, in other words, the natural abilities of those skilled in public speaking. Paul may have also had in mind people who were gifted to understand languages. We know that Corinth was kind of a crossroads for the world. There were Romans and Greeks and people who spoke Arabic and there were the Jewish people. and, And so some people have the gift of learning and understanding languages. So these could all be considered gifts of tongues, but they're gifts of tongues of men. Paul saw dynamic speech of this kind not only as not super helpful to the gospel, but also as a potential threat to it. In, in fact, the, the reason that Paul believed that is that he thought, saw that what set apart the gospel was not how dynamically it was communicated, but the content of the message of the good news of Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians chapter two, earlier in the passage, he wrote, "When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God." with lofty speech or wisdom, in fact, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but rather in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Basically, Paul's concern is that if people were mesmerized by the messenger, they would leave when a more articulate messenger came along. If people were mesmerized by how gifted the speaker or the preacher was, then when some foreign idea came, when some anti-Christ idea came, if that person was more gifted in articulating their message, then they would leave for the messenger. And so he says, don't follow the messenger. The power of the gospel is in the message itself. Now this is a word for the church in America in the 21st century. Because unfortunately, there are churches springing up all over the place where the defining uh, characteristic that is looked for is a spiritual gift of something like teaching or speaking. And we elevate these men and women and they they get great followings because they're so gifted in some substitute for the real thing that once their life implodes, because it wasn't built on the foundation of the love of Jesus, we all go, what happened? How could somebody so gifted fall so far? And the answer, I think, very often is simply, they had not Love. They became blinded by by the lights. They became enamored with the followers and they moved off of the essential thing and they substituted for it dynamic speech and the ability to draw crowds. So Paul says, even if I have the tongues of men or the tongues of angels, this I believe is what is referred to as the supernatural abilities of those that have the gift, the spiritual gift of tongues. Now in the original language of Greek, that word tongues is "glossa," and it just means language. And you might remember that at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, remember the gospel's got to get out to all different parts of the world, and so God miraculously gifts those first followers, men and women, with the ability to speak in languages they themselves didn't know. So they're, they're talking, sounds like Babel to them, and somebody comes up to them and says, how do you know my language? You're a Jewish person, How do you know this foreign tongue? And the reason was that the Holy Spirit had miraculously gifted them to speak in a known tongue, but one that was not known to them. Now there is also this thing in in Corinthians that it seems like this gift of tongues sometimes even transcends known languages and is a language that is for the Holy Spirit alone. So that when I speak in the gift of tongues, no one else understands what I'm saying, but I'm speaking as though to God himself. This is what I think Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 14 2. He says, One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now, we're going to get more into this thing of tongues. That was the questions I had after the message today. I don't want to get too sidetracked on that right now, because Paul's point is greater than that. Paul's point is even if I deliver phenomenal messages of speech, Even if I have this supernatural gift to speak to God in a way that nobody else understands, if I don't have love, it all amounts to nothing. Yesterday, we had seven or eight or 35 children in our home all day, and most of them I like. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. They they were great, but they're kids, and it's not their fault that we have an out-of-tune piano sitting in the main part of our, you know, where you come into the house. And, our, and kids, mine included, love playing the piano. <laughs> but it doesn't really sound like anything you'd want to hear. And, and my, my reason for telling you this is I think that sometimes, while we're exercising our spiritual gift, especially those that, that feel a little more impressive to other people, we feel like we're just playing some Mozart or Beethoven and what it sounds like in the ears of God is a five-year-old pl- banging and clanging on a piano. In fact, my sense is that's maybe what it sounds like to other people too. We all know this saying, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. There's a lot of people, man. They can, they can speak, they can draw a crowd, but get them off of the platform and see what kind of person they are. And very often, unfortunately, their lives do not reflect the love of Jesus. It is an insufficient substitute for love. The second one is this, spiritual insight. Spiritual insight. Verse two, Paul writes, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Now there's a few aspects of spiritual insight that Paul is referring to with this this language and he's addressing two significant political forces in Corinth. One we know is there were a lot of Jewish people living in Corinth. Many of those were still practicing uh, religious Judaism. Some had become followers of Jesus. But in the Jewish faith, the most important people were the prophets. In fact, in one way or another, every hero of Jewish faith is a prophet. Abraham, Moses, David, uh, Samuel, Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah. When a Jewish person thought of the prophets, they were thinking of their own kind of Mount Rushmore of the heroes of the Jewish nation and of the Jewish faith. And Paul says, even if I have prophetic powers and oh by the way even if i understand all mysteries and all knowledge i think here paul is addressing the the greeks in the room because the greek people were enamored with gaining knowledge their heroes were men like socrates plato aristotle the pursuit and the thirst of knowledge was it was kind of a hallmark of greek society And there were even these mystery religions that began to pop up in the Greco Roman world, and they all were under this umbrella term Gnosticism. And the thing they shared in common was they all proposed to have a secret or a hidden or a deep knowledge that others didn't know. And all of a sudden they were the ones in the know, and all of a sudden they were, they were the embodiment of of knowledge and understanding. I want you to know that as important and healthy as the pursuit of knowledge is, and it is, Paul said to Timothy, study to show yourself approved. You should know what you believe and why you believe it. But there is another kind of pursuit of knowledge that is very, very dangerous. In the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, God has instructed the first people, Adam and Eve, he says, everything that I have created for you is yours for food. Basically, I made a really, really good world. Go enjoy it. This is this could be a whole other message and sermon. But some of you have a twisted view of God, and I want to set that right by saying, when God created His good world, almost every single thing in it was for your enjoyment. God is not a miser. He's not stingy, doling out just a little bit of pleasure and provision. God made a world for us to enjoy. But then He said this. But do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because when you eat of it, you will what? You will die. There is a knowledge that leads to life. But there is a knowledge that leads to death. And in some, the the pursuit of this hidden secret knowledge is leading them to death and bondage. These mystery religions in the first century are making a comeback in the 21st century. And they go by different names and they have different people leading them and they're populating YouTube and they're, they're spo- espousing these ideas that are just bizarre and crazy. But people are drawn to it because it sounds like they've got something that nobody else has. The pursuit of knowledge is a tool in the hand of someone who is wanting to love people well, but it can be a weapon against others for those who are not. In fact, I would say that the subtle danger in pursuing knowledge is the temptation to become godlike in our knowledge while remaining godless in our character. You know, is that possible? Absolutely, that's possible. <laughs> Absolutely, it's possible to fill your he- head with all kinds of ideas and notions, but it does not make you a more loving person. The litmus test for Christianity is not how much you know, it's how well you love. So that's an insufficient substitute. Then we have this third one impressive faith or we might say powerful faith paul writes if i have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love i am nothing now we can see how something like dynamic speech or even spiritual insight that could be exercised and experienced outside of the christian faith there are people you know that give incredible ted talks that aren't followers of jesus there are people that understand the bible and and know the Bible perhaps even better than I do, but who have rejected it as the truth of God. But Paul says, man, even if I have all faith, without love I'm nothing. So now he's talking to us. The reality is, is our belief system, Christianity, you can't even talk about it without referring to it as a faith system. In fact, sometimes we use the word faith interchangeably with Christianity. We'll say that person is a person of faith. By the way, I'm not a huge fan of that expression because there are a lot of people that are people of faith all over the world. We are not people of faith. We are people of faith in Jesus. There's a difference. But there's a clue here that Paul is saying even those who have faith in Jesus, because he says this, he says, faith so as to remove mountains. Hang on. It seems like somebody talked about faith to move mountains. Who was that? That was Jesus. So Paul's not saying, if you have all faith, but it's not faith in Jesus. He's saying, even faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, it amounts to nothing. Let me go to a couple of verses. I'm going to skip three that I have in my notes and go to, go to two more. 1 John 4 eight says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. James 2.19, you believe that there is one God, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. So somebody's going to say, I thought it was just faith. Well, no, I would say it is faith demonstrating itself in love. If I don't love, the evidence would point to the fact that I am not truly a follower of Jesus because Jesus is the embodiment of the love of God. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to love perfectly. It doesn't mean I'm going to always, you know, ace that test. But if I am not marked by a loving disposition and love toward other people, it's evidence that what faith I have is not saving faith. It's simply an understanding of the truth of God with a rejection of it personally. Faith in God without love for other people is not saving faith, which means that Christianity devoid of love is not Christianity. As we turn the page on 2023 and we enter the new year, 2024, in a few weeks, it's just a a reality that I'm beginning to think on. We're entering into an election season. And I remember what the last one looked like, and I don't want to do that again. (laughs) The defining mark of Christianity is not how loud we shout, how well we espouse our theories on cable news channels, how vigilant we are on social media, or how many arguments we win, What marks Christianity is something much deeper, and by the way, much harder than that. It is how we love other people. I'll be really honest with you. My great fear for my children and for yours is that they might grow up with a distorted version of Christianity that looked like God establishing his kingdom through politics and politicians. Jesus had every opportunity to set up his kingdom on earth when he came, and he rejected it every single time. Because what happens with young people when they reject a distorted and twisted version of Christianity, they think that they had to walk away from Jesus to be okay. And, and I say, what would it look like for a church to embody love in such a way that our children grow up going, man, if Jesus loves me like my church loved me, that's who I want to follow. What would it look like for our community to say, if, if Jesus looks like what I experience at Horizon West Church, that's where I want to put my trust and my faith. Even faith itself, devoid of love, is insufficient. Some of you would know that the most effective counterfeits are those that look just like the real thing. And here in verse 3, Paul is going to touch on what becomes the most subtle and dangerous of all of these substitutes for love, sacrificial action. He says in verse 3, If I give away all I have and I deliver my body up to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. For a few years when I was very young, my dad served as a police officer in a small town in Indiana. And one of the stories that I remember my dad sharing from that is they had to be able to discern counterfeit money. Like that was one of the things in his law enforcement training that he had to do. And guess what? They never once looked at counterfeit money. Because the way that you can discern a counterfeit is by studying the real thing. And when you know the real thing intimately well, when you see something that's not the real thing, you immediately know it. You immediately know that that, that doesn't that's not, that's not a match for this other thing. I want to address this issue of, of what I call modern activism. And before I do that, let me just say, I think we need to be doing more on issues like immigration and racism and poverty. We need to be doing far more than we're doing, not less. Not, I don't want to dismiss that. But I do want to say that there's a version of activism or social justice in a world today that looks really, really great on the outside but is not motivated by anything but, but pride, by virtue signaling, by keyboard, keyboard warriors sitting behind their computers. It is easy. It is easy to donate some money to charity. It is easy to, to go to war behind a computer screen. You know what's really, really hard? Loving your family loving your coworkers, loving the people that that tick you off in the day, loving the people that are difficult to interact with. And I want you to know that the most important assignment that you have, that every Christian in the world, myself included, has is to faithfully love and serve the people in your immediate sphere of influence. I know people, they're gung-ho to to put an end to every war and and feed every mouth, and and those things are great. I pray they all happen. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Paul says if the motivating force behind it isn't love, you amount to nothing. You stack all of that up, and it amounts to nothing in the eyes of God. I want you to know that even Jesus' life is a testimony of the love of God. Jesus didn't just show up and spend a few days on the earth so he could die on a cross. Jesus lived 33 years demonstrating love in the way that he received little children, in the way that he healed lepers, in the way that he took time with a 5 times divorced woman and didn't undignify or dishonor her, in the way he showed up at the funeral of a man named Lazarus and ministered to those that man's sisters. And in John chapter 11, when Jesus is at the funeral of Lazarus, before he raises him back to life, he's weeping with the family. And it causes those with him to say, "Look at how he loved him." Which means that as impressive as Jesus's speech was, and it was, as impressive as his miraculous powers were, and they were, if you were to spend 10 minutes with Jesus, the thing that would strike you the most is how well and how deeply He loves you. The question is, when we spend 10 minutes with people, is that what they come away with? Or do they go, yeah, he's a a real gifted whatever. She's really good at this. What made the difference for Jesus and what caused people to want to be his followers was the fact that he loved them like no one else ever had. If we want to change the world, let's commit to learning how to love and serve real people that we encounter in our everyday life. Remember that Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this you will, uh, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you what? If you love one another. In just a minute, the team is going to come up and lead us in a song called Light of the World, and this is going to be a new song, and so we're going to do this a little bit differently. Uh, as the team plays, we're, we're going to stand, and we're going to take that in, but you don't need to feel the need to sing it or try to learn it on the fly. Instead, I want to use that time as a time of response and prayer if you need to be prayed for. I'll get to more of that in a minute. The the song has this line in it. They sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. You need to know what you're singing when you say, come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel simply means God with us. And in Matthew chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, you're going to have a son, he says, you will call him Jesus, but they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, when Jesus interacted with people, they knew that God himself had visited them. When I was in my 20s, I had the chance to lead a team of high school students kind of all over the country in a big bus. And we would go to different small towns in places like Nebraska and Iowa. And we would serve in churches, but we would also do community programs in the parks or in the schools. And on one occasion, we were at a park in like a small town in Nebraska and there's a bunch of kids running around, and, and our high school students are finding ways to interact with these kids and play with them and have conversations, and you know, over here, there's a, a high school-age girl that's doing a gospel presentation with some kids that are circled around her, and I'm just kind of talking to the adults, and I end up finding myself sitting next to a woman on a park bench, and her son, he's about nine or 10, he's out there, he's one of the kids playing, but her son had special needs, and she was talking to me about those issues and challenges and how hard it was and she's watching those high school students interact with her son and she just begins to cry and she says to me and I don't know if she was even a follower of Jesus but she says to me this morning when I woke up I prayed God would you let my son know that he is loved today and she said as I see these high school students playing with him and listening to him and making him smile and laugh she said I'm thinking to myself God you came meaning that those high school students so embodied the love of Jesus to that child that she interpreted it as Emmanuel, God with us. There is no substitute for love. Dynamic speech needs the applause of an audience. Spiritual insight needs a secret to discover. Impressive faith needs a mountain to move. Sacrificial action needs an altar on which to die. There is no substitute for love. Because love isn't like any of those things. It's small enough to fill the spaces other virtues can't. A cup of cold water for a thirsty child. A simple act of kindness for an adversary. Love needs no accolades, nor does it require some great obstacle. Everything multiplied by love equals one. Lo- one person, one conversation, one opportunity. Love needs nothing from another, and it gives everything to and for the other. This is love and this is the heart of God. As we get further into this Christmas season and we celebrate the baby in the manger and we celebrate Jesus having come, know that in Jesus the love of God visited the earth. We look to him and we see love. I'm going to ask our our team leaders and our deacons to make their way to the front. They're going to be standing down here on the floor. Uh, We want an opportunity as we close the service today to demonstrate love to you and to love our church well. And so if you're carrying some heavy burden, maybe it's a, an illness or maybe it's something a family member is going through. That could be a struggling relationship, a financial concern. If you would like to receive prayer, I would love for our team to have the opportunity to pray for you. And it may be as simple as you go, I don't have some great uh, you know, barrier or hurdle or obstacle in my life right now, but you would identify that there is an, a challenge in your soul, a challenge in your heart in loving people well. Maybe that's loving your spouse well, loving your children well, and you'd like to receive prayer. We'd love to pray over you that the love of God would fill your heart and overflow into the lives of other people. As we sing, team lead us.